I am so glad that you can join me on another episode of Chan with a Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. If you are graduating or have already graduated with an arts degree, such as philosophy, political science, humanities, you are probably wondering to yourselves, how can I pivot my degree into a role in the workforce that can generate some good income? I know you've heard the stories of how students graduate with these arts degrees, can't find any work, and then they end up having to take a low-paying job, such as a barista, retail, or waiting tables. I 100% believe that results will always be your responsibility. So if you do not want to resort to having to take those jobs to get by, then this episode is for you because I brought in a guest that graduated with a PhD in what you would call a non-traditional field, which was religious studies. He was able to successfully pivot that degree and his experience in academia into a role in the corporate world. He also now runs his own company as well. His name is Chris Cornthwaite, and he's my guest for this episode of Chant with a Plan, the podcast. So a little bit about Chris. He graduated with a PhD in religious studies, which I just mentioned, from the University of Toronto. He's worked running policy projects for a think tank in Canada, and then for the Canadian federal government as a policy analyst. He created Roostervane in 2019, to help students build amazing careers with whatever degree they graduated with. Let's get into my discussion with Chris on how to maximize any degree to build a career you love. Morning, Chris. Good morning. This is my first time doing an early morning podcast. Well, I appreciate you getting up early and working with me here. So I tend to work in the early morning schedule because I have little kids. So I'm usually in bed by eight or nine. So <laughs> nice. Are, are they in school right now? Yeah, they're they're all in school, and uh, we are doing school from home, which is uh, which is an interesting uh, interesting thing. So both my wife and I kind of alternate taking care of them and trying to get our work done. And it's been an interesting time and I'll be glad when they're back. But anyways, we're, we're making it work. I think a lot of parents are in the same boat as you. Like they're, they're just making do, but they want them to be back in school, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to bring you on to the show. I, I never expect to say this, but we're gonna be talking about very expensive pieces of paper, also known as degrees. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, the the big argument or debate is if you're not graduating with a bachelor's of business, computer engineering degree or a computer programming degree or a- any type of degree where there's a quote unquote immediate demand out there, it's harder to get into the corporate world. Usually when people graduate with bachelor's of arts in, for example, philosophy, political science, and they don't go farther into academics, just as getting their master's and PhD, they end up working a low paying jobs, mostly in the hospitality industry or retail before the pandemic, obviously. So with that being said, is that really a myth in terms of if you don't get those high demand degrees, so to speak, that it's very hard to take advantage of your degree or employers don't really take you seriously? Or is it the fact that these people aren't leveraging their degree in the proper way? I think it's... It's both a myth and it's not a myth. So on the one hand, there are, I mean, if, if you look at our undergraduate degrees in particular, um, there are a really high number of undergraduate degrees that are unemployed. So this is exactly kind of the story, sorry, unemployed, I meant to say underemployed. So this is exactly kind of the story that you're, uh, that you're talking about, this like person with, uh, you know, philosophy, BA in philosophy, working as a barista at Starbucks. And obviously, we all know sort of anecdotally that that happens, right? We've all kind of seen it and 
probably most of us could name somebody who is exactly in that situation. On the other hand, I think we're still living in a world where pretty much any university degree generally translates into higher earnings, if you look at the statistics, and, and less, less um, unemployment overall. So I think it's kind of, it's, it's really hard to generalize, but I think one of the problems comes from the way that we think about degrees. We have really historically thought about degrees in terms of like a generic training, especially kind of what you're talking about, like the art, the liberal arts degrees. We've thought about them historically as being like training to be good citizens. We've thought about them, you know, as a chance to, what one of the things I heard a lot was to like live the life of the mind or, you know, there's something about these degrees that we think is maybe separate from careers or historically they haven't really been thought about as leading to a career but they're thought of kind of as an end in and of themselves that they're good just because you should do a degree and it's good to do it you'll be a more well-rounded citizen and you'll kind of figure the job stuff out and i think the reality of the current world we're living in which is a lot of people have these degrees you know a degree is still is still mandatory for a lot of a lot of fields i mean if you apply for a corporate job with uh, with only a high school diploma certain jobs you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to get in right like a degree would still be in a lot of cases kind of the mandatory minimum cutoff for actually getting into one of these jobs. At the same time, we still need to think about how degrees translate into careers. And I think as as individuals, and it's one of the reasons I started blogging about this rather than working on it as like a policy question, is I think individuals need to be empowered to think about their degrees differently and to realize how to use their degrees. And I think this is a place where universities haven't really done very well traditionally, but I think they're thinking more about it now just just because of the realities of their current situation. So more and more universities will see, and even, even like the liberal arts, we will see more and more some thinking about how these connect to work. And I think increasingly in the next few decades, that's going to be their indicator of whether these universities actually survive or not is whether how well they can connect their students to work. With that being said, Chris, can you go back to your last point about like university prosperity as a business for the future in terms of uh, connecting their degrees with possible work? Can you get more into that? Yeah. So, I mean, the pandemic has really, uh, really decimated a lot of university finances. And if you look at where universities get their money from, I mean, it's, it's, partially from tuition. And we've actually seen, as far as I know, um, I think we're looking at much lower enrollment in, in universities for next fall, I guess. We've seen enrollment go down, but it's also a lot of the places universities get revenue from things like facilities, from, um, I don't know, anything from like parking to residence to whatever. And a lot of those places have dried up right now. So universities have lost a lot of revenue. And at the same time, I mean, independent of the pandemic, we're looking at a world where people are questioning the value of a university degree when you can, you know, when Google, for example, is, has introduced training programs that they will consider to be equivalent to a degree. Shopify here in Ottawa has partnered with Carleton University to actually create a new kind of degree that's sort of, uh, it's a computer science degree, but you work at Shopify partially while you're doing it. So I think we're universities are being forced just by the reality of and especially i mean this isn't in canada university is still quite a bit cheaper than the in the us so in the us when you're paying 30 and 40,000 dollars a year for undergrad the expected output is even that much higher that people are thinking if we're if we have this much money invested into a degree surely i shouldn't be working at starbucks right so i think universities are being forced to grapple with that problem head on to add to that the pandemic has even the playing field 
like you said, there's less enrollment now. I read recently that a lot of high school graduates that wanted to go to university, quote unquote, for the experience, through the pandemic, it's mostly online. A lot of them are actually taking a leap year right now just to maybe do something else or work on the passion project. And then in terms of the fact that students can't go to class, there's other alternatives now, such as online boot camps that will actually give you more technical skills that are in more demand to get you a better job. So in a way, when you get rid of the experience of going to a university, meeting friends, joining social groups, and just stick with the education only, it really doesn't differentiate compared to other online resources, such as like Udemy or boot camps. Uh, am I correct? I think mostly, mostly yes. Um, the one thing I would, so I would still go back to that thing that a lot of employers still expect a university degree as a bare minimum. And I mean, this could certainly change. And, and certainly in the world of tech, when we're thinking about, you know, coding DevOps kind of stuff, it's, it's, that's changing. Because the point is that tech companies have this job to do. And, and because we have such a shortage of tech workers, it's harder to say, okay, you have to have a computer science degree. And especially, I mean, it doesn't matter. We're living in a world where output is more important than anything. You know, if, if you're a graphic designer, you can go to design school or you can just be a really good graphic designer. And if I'm, you know, I, I run a company, I don't actually care. I just care about who's the best designer, right? And I think there are similar things with, you know, coding and, and a lot of different fields like that. So I think the way we look at university degrees may change. And and it may decrease. And I think that, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. The one thing I think that we haven't quite realized is kind of on the soft skill side of things. You can take a coding course if you're fresh out of high school, but these soft skills that employers say they really want, anything from creative thinking to people skills to communication skills, often it's really hard to teach these things, and especially on like, like an online course model. It's really hard to learn soft skills from sitting in front of a computer and, and reading, you know, watching videos or reading or answering questions or whatever. So I think this is actually a place where university may still have an edge for the foreseeable future until we can start to actually figure out how to teach these kind of soft skills um, online. I know there are certainly people who are trying to do it. So to me, that's where I, I might still see a place for the type of education university does in the future. But I think it's undoubtedly it's going to shift. I hope it does, to be honest, because it's not serving people well right now. Yeah, to add to that, you have a lot of quote unquote book smart, fresh graduates could go into the corporate world, but they have very limited soft skills. As yeah. in they don't know how to present properly to executives. They don't know how to work on the team. They tend to micromanage just the fact that in university, they don't get a lot of group projects. So they tend to do everything themselves. But in a corporate or business environment, there is a lot of cross-functional collaboration. So if you don't have those soft skills, you're going to have a very tough time uh, working with people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's still a question of how to actually train for those soft skills. And I mean, I, you're right. I mean, so the, the flip side of that is that there are people who seem to come out of a four-year university degree or, I mean, the people I work with, some of them have been in university for 10, 15 years. These are people with PhDs in many cases who argue don't have soft skills either. It's not a universal thing that a university degree translates into soft skills, but at the same time, a lot of the, the types of experiences university can give you can help to build those communication interpersonal skills. So it's just a question of if we're not learning those at university, how do we learn them? If I was a third or fourth year student, getting my Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy, political science, psychology, what have you. What advice would you give me in terms of setting myself up for success to get a job right after graduation? I think one of the first things and maybe, maybe the hardest things is actually just a shift in your thinking. So I think that a lot of times, and I'll use the example of a philosophy degree because that's a great, that's a great example. So a lot of times if I meet philosophy students, 
They are people who really love to kind of disappear into books and ideas. When I took philosophy courses in my undergrad, I w- it was actually very, very like anti-capitalist, very anti-job, anti-work. We like to sit around and talk about ideas. But one of the things that I kind of an attitude that came through is that working at a job is almost crass. So if you actually have a philosophy grad who just wants to you know, kind of sit around with, I don't know, a jacket and tweet elbow patches or something, which is kind of the way that I thought about myself when I did philosophy courses. But I think if that same philosophy grad starts to change their mindset to say, how could I actually translate this to the marketplace? And for example, what if that philosophy grad started to think about some of the philosophical implications or ethical implications of, you know, self-driving cars and the choices that they make, you know, when they choose to whether, you know, whatever the algorithm is, I don't know that much about it, but I do know that there's kind of the moral question of if they're going to, you know, swerve to avoid another car, but hit a pedestrian, what do they do? Those kind of questions for a philosophy grad might be interesting. They're probably well suited to approach them, but it takes a mindset shift to change your perspective from like, I just want to read Kant all day to how could I actually apply this to the world? And when you do that subtle shift, that can change a lot of things. In terms of practical advice, I think what I would tell the person is to go and visit the career center at the university. A lot of universities, one of the things I didn't mention in the last point we were talking about, but universities are increasingly going to be offering internships. So if your university has an internship program, some kind of arrangement, I would definitely consider doing an internship. I think that's a perfect way to kind of get a foot in both worlds and get some practical experience. And in many cases, when students do an internship, they end up getting hired at that company after. And even if that's not where you want to stay for the rest of your life, which I mean, which of us are going to stay at a company for the rest of our life, that doesn't even happen anymore. But at least you have something on your resume, then that when you go to an employer, you don't just have that degree, you've got a degree plus experience. The other thing I two more things, I, I guess I would say, I would say networking is really, really valuable. And by this, I don't mean going to networking events and handing out business cards. I just mean, just take a look at the people around you and who are doing interesting careers and go and talk to them. I mean, if you have family members or friends, or even you may have professors who are, I don't know, connected outside outside of the university, and maybe they can introduce you to somebody, but just, or, or alumni, alumni associations are another great way to great place to meet people. Just start meeting people and ask them the kind of work that they do, ask them about how they got to where they're they are. And if you're interested in the field, ask for advice on how to get there. And you'll be surprised at how many people help you. And then I think the final thing I would say is to as you start to do this mindset shift to thinking about yourself as somebody who's got something to offer the marketplace, rather than just as a student, start to kind of reflect that in the way you present yourself online. So I think that would be, for me, that would look like, for example, choosing a potential field you're interested in moving into and making sure your LinkedIn profile expresses that. I mean, keywords are really vital on LinkedIn. So for example, if I was an English major and I was interested in being a content creator, I might actually say that in my LinkedIn profile, instead of saying I'm a, you know, English major, I'd say I'm a content creator or a, you know, a web copywriter or whatever. So start to create a LinkedIn profile, especially if you've never done it, do create it. And remember that keywords are everything employers are looking for people based on the keywords they have and start to engage on LinkedIn, start to get visible. And I think both you and IMAX have kind of experienced the way that LinkedIn can actually transform a career or consulting or whatever you're trying to do with it. LinkedIn is a really powerful tool and everybody's there. So I think it's all the best place to be to kind of build your reputation, your credibility, your visibility, and to kind of meet potential employers and and make yourself look good, as it were. Okay, and obviously right now on LinkedIn, a lot of career coaches and job experts are saying that you should network because it's a lot easier than applying online. In terms of getting your face in potential companies you want to work for, 
So what type of quick advice can you provide for people in terms of networking effectively to get those opportunities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are kind of three reasons you network. First of all, you do network for the hidden job opportunities. You know, 80% of jobs aren't advertised. It's the hidden job market. So networking is really important there. You kind of network to build your social capital and build, you know, the amount of people who, who know you and who recognize you and who, when they have a job opening, they're going to think about you for that job opening. And I think you also network to learn. I think networking is a really valuable way to learn about the world, to learn about careers. And I think I would start with the learning first. So I think maybe start networking just to learn about careers. So the point is that when you're networking, a lot of people think they have to be these really slick networkers who approach potential employers and convince them to give them a job. I've actually found networking to be a little more subtle than that. So I think approaching networking from the learning perspective first, I reached out to people who look interesting and I did this when I left my degree and I didn't really have anywhere to go. I just, I reached out to everybody I possibly could who looked interesting and I would, I'd ask to have a coffee. I mean, I know more and more people are cautioning against this, I guess. And it's partly because a lot of people like myself and probably like you too, Max, just get inundated with people who are asking for a coffee. But I still think, I mean, if you're trying to have a coffee with a recruiter at Google, that's probably not going to happen. But if you've got a company in your town that's kind of interesting, I mean, reaching out to a manager there and asking to have a, an informational interview and just ask some questions about how the work goes, you may find that you get a you get a good response. So I think in general, you're just reaching out to people, trying to find people who will give you the time to just talk to you and tell you about what they do. And we call it informational interview, which means you just kind of you're interviewing them to find out about what kind of work they do what they like about it what they don't like about it how to get there and then just as kind of a final tip i think this is actually easier than ever now because of technology for example i've used the app shaper a lot s-h-a-p-r it kind of works like a tinder for networking so um, so I'm told I've never actually used Tinder, but <laughs> you kind of swipe right or swipe left based on whether you want to connect or not connect with somebody on Shaper. I met a lot of really cool people doing that. Lunch Club is another one that does similar things. I suspect Clubhouse would be kind of interesting. I'm not on there, but I've heard a lot of buzz around it. And I think it's new enough that it would probably still be a really interesting place to meet people. But anyways, I mean, the point is to get creative about how you meet people and be kind of strategic about choosing people. You know, reaching out to an executive at Google and asking if you can pick their brain, probably not going to happen. But, you know, if, if you have an uncle who, or an aunt who works in an interesting company in an interesting role, you know, start with them or, or the alumni the alumni group, again, um, the alumni people can connect you to interesting people sometimes. So try to try to work those warm connections before you start reaching out cold even. I think that's a really good place to start. Just to add what you were saying, Chris, about trying to get informational interviews with a recruiter at Google. The thing of, as a recent grad, my advice is don't try to go for the big coming right away. Like it's, it's good to try, but don't put all your eggs in one basket because there's a lot of other small and medium businesses that aren't as popular that are willing to give a recent grad a chance if they're able to sell themselves well during an informational interview, right? A lot of recent grads, they want the Googles and Microsofts right away, but there's a lot of small and medium businesses that need your expertise and you can work there for a few years and then try to get the Google Microsofts if you want, right? Because for me, what I've learned when I was a recent grad is you just have to get in the Dory industry no matter how you do it, whether it's just a small agency for a few years. It's about getting that work experience. So when you do apply for bigger companies, it's not just your education, there's nothing else, right? You just want that years of experience on your resume to help make you more of an eligible candidate, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, I think one of the other interesting things I would say is that the increase of thought leadership that I kind of mentioned, becoming a thought leader 
later on LinkedIn, for example, I mean, it's not for everybody. It's not everybody, I think, kind of has the desire or the ability to create content constantly for months on end and create value. But ironically, that is, I would say, the thing that can open a lot of doors and a lot of interesting people end up coming to you. I mean, now having doing what I do, starting a blog, I started a blog initially for PhD students who are underemployed and couldn't get jobs. And it's since expanded to kind of other degrees too. But one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, people from Google and Microsoft and a lot of people who have these degrees and struggle to get work, but eventually did end up at Google or whatever, have reached out to me and said, you know, we like the work that you're doing, if you know, if we can help, whatever. So it's interesting that I think it's kind of a, a backwards way into these a lot of these companies too, is that you can create your online visibility. And if you're a storyteller, if you like to share data, whatever, whatever the thing is that you do, if you can get really good at it and get visible, you're going to find that your ability to connect with people at those big companies will increase. And like I said, they may even come to you. You never know. So that's kind of another way to approach it as well, I think. Speaking of underemployed PhDs, if let's say we always emphasize on networking, but let's say this master's graduate or PhD graduate wants to apply online, which I, again, I highly recommend you do. You, you do want to apply online and network to cover both your bases. If they send their application to an online job ad and they have a master's and PhD on there, like what's the quote unquote stigma? Do recruiters think like, okay, this person has a PhD, they probably want a lot of money. Like what's the assumption of these PhD master degree holders when they apply online? I don't think a master's degree has much stigma, to be honest. I could be wrong and I guess it would kind of be an individual thing. I think master's degrees are great and I think they're relatively short. They give you a little leg up in the competition in some cases. They're also just much more common in, in Canada and I guess in the UK too. I mean, in the US, it's it's a little bit different structure. Yeah, the PhD is a tough one because often PhDs have spent you know, five to 10 years of their life chasing a PhD. They're really highly qualified for <laughs> certain things. And for many of us, it was we were qualifying to be a professor and then we kind of realized that job didn't exist anymore. So I think it's really hard for some people to on paper convince an employer that they're super valuable. Now, I mean, there are exceptions to this. Like if you have a, you know, if you have a PhD in artificial intelligence, I would guess a resume alone would be enough to get you into some interesting places. So it depends on how in demand your skills are. So I think it's important to, and one of the things I see a lot with people with, with advanced degrees is they don't necessarily understand the language of their target industry. So I think this is a really important thing as well to kind of learn the language of whatever industry you want to move into. So, you know, kind of to go back to that English degree example, if you have an English PhD, I mean, I could apply for a job saying that I'm an English PhD and I want to write literature, but actually the way to apply for that job would probably be to say, you know, I'm a content writer or a copywriter, maybe even take a course in copywriting. So you're actually fitting a niche and a need that an employer has. And I guess the other thing too, I think in some cases, I think cover letter can be important. It it depends. I mean, it's hard to, it's, it's really hard to talk about these things generically because different degrees have kind of different nuances, a lot of kind of, you know, data science, IT, things like that. They're not going to have the same kind of troubles that a humanities or social science degree holder will have. But I think one of the things that can give you an advantage if you don't look as good on paper and if, if you're in addition to networking, which I do think is vital for a lot of us, I think kind of writing an interesting cover letter that makes an employer set up and take notice. Really, that's the job of the resume and cover letter. It's not to get you the job, it's to get you to the next step. And I think when you write an interesting cover letter, you know, it could be a really cool story, a funny story. It could be just something with some personality, you know, rather than, you know, to whom it may concern, I am applying for X, Y, you know, Z job. I think that can be a great way to get into, but it's tough. And I think working with these degree holders, a lot of them really struggle to translate their degrees 
into the marketplace. In some cases, just coming back to the stigma, in, in some cases, I think it might be that employers are worried people will want more money. I think that happens. In some cases, I think employers have some, so, some employers maybe look poorly on people who have spent, you know, 10 or 15 years in university and have relatively little to show for it, especially if you're applying for kind of an entry level job. I think some employers worry, I've, I've had employers tell me that they worry that PhDs are out of touch or, or PhDs are too, you know, too like in their head, they live in their heads and can actually kind of function in the real world. It's hard to say what actual baggage a particular employer will bring. And I think what I tell people with a lot of education is you can't, you can't really help it. All you can do is show up, show that you understand the problems, that you're willing to do the job, that you're going to be great to work with. And you can't really do much more than that. And if they do have a problem, if they're worried you're going to charge too much or whatever, that's not really on you. You know, so It's tough to have a simple answer to it, but I think maybe those are some of the things that I would say. Yeah, it's very hard to translate a good story when it's one-sided, right? When you submit a resume and cover letter, it's very one-sided. Like you can't clarify points because you're not having a conversation with a person reading your resume and cover letter. So it goes back to the networking, like reaching out to people, generating these conversations and explaining how your PhD degree can help this company, right? I, I think at the end of the day, it goes back to networking to help connect the dots. Because when you have the resume or cover letter, it's, it's a one-sided conversation. If there's a point that they don't understand, they're not gonna try to guess what it is. They're just gonna say, it is what it is, and then they move on, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, I mean, a couple more things. One more thing that I would say is, one of the temptations for people with a lot of education is and, and not a lot of experience is to put on, you know, on one hand, maybe you have a PhD in microbiology, and then your experience is, you know, I was a lifeguard at camp, or I was, <laughs> you know, I was scooping ice cream or something. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with your experience is your experience, you know, whatever work you've done. I've certainly had a lot of jobs, one of which was selling meat over the phone as a telemarketer. So <laughs> but the point is, I don't put that on my resume. So I think there's also a bit of a disconnect between people who are highly educated, who kind of expect to be leaders and actually do have a lot of potential to be leaders, but then kind of present themselves. They are entry level people who, you know, who, whose last job was scooping ice cream. So I think it's really hard to present yourself as kind of that leader who, even though you don't have a lot of experience, nevertheless has a lot to offer. It's not a simple thing, but it's definitely something that I think a lot about how to do that more easily and how to how to help people to do that. So with that being said, that leads me to my last question of this interview. So let's say you're an individual who's in academic research with a master's or PhD, and they want to pivot into corporate. They say, I've done my academic research for a few years, but I want to pivot into more of a corporate role. What are some expectations and advice you can provide for these people? And what are some strategies they should implement in order to make their transition a success? So expectations, first of all, I mean, probably not going to be the boss <laughs> the first day. I mean, maybe. I, I know people who've kind of transitioned into really big jobs, and it's just come from kind of showing people that you're capable. But in many cases with, you know, what I did, for example, I had to pay my dues. I got hired at jobs that were the people kind of around me were people who had a master's degree and five years of experience. And that's about where I came in with my PhD. And since my PhD took five years, I guess that makes sense. So I think the expectations are you, you need to kind of, I, I think some people maybe look too high, but again, it depends. Like if you have a PhD, I don't know, in a really hot field of human cell tissue regeneration or something, and you're looking at a biotech company, you might be able to make 150 grand a year out of the gate. It really just depends on what your specialty is and how in demand it is. If you're somebody like me with a humanities PhD with a little bit trickier value proposition to an employer, you may have to pay some dues. So I think that's important expectations. I also, I, I don't like when people aim too low. I mean, it really kind of bugs me when people with all this, with a lot of education think that the best they can do is really entry level 
like an administrative assistant or something. There are people who have to do it, I guess, to, to pay their dues. But I think in a lot of cases, if you play your cards right, you can do better. And that's why, again, coming to strategies or advice, it's just, I just say networking. I mean, honestly, it's like as there's a difference between networking as a new grad. And this is where I need to differentiate for, for some of your listeners, because I know a lot of your listeners will be more coming out of an undergrad or something. So by the time you're, by the time you've done a PhD, you're probably you know, in, in, in your 30s, at least, you're looking a little more senior. And in some cases, it changes the dimensions of how you can approach the job search. But I mean, I just tell people to network. That's really the secret sauce. And if you just obsessively try to connect with anybody you possibly can. And when I was when I was leaving, leaving the university after my PhD, I mean, I talked to everybody I talked, I looked at becoming a realtor, I looked at becoming <laughs> I, I was even looking at becoming a construction worker for a while. Thankfully, I didn't have to do that. But yeah, I, I just talked to everybody. Nobody was too good to talk to. And I think this is kind of a universal strategy. And I'd say that to undergrads too. talk to anybody you can possibly talk to. And I mean, my strategy, believe it or not, is actually we, we may differ on this, Max. Maybe you have a different perspective, but I actually don't apply for jobs. I, I really don't. I I network and network and network, and I only generally give a resume when I'm asked for it. And this is kind of a strategy I employed early. I knew I didn't look very good on paper, but I knew that I could present really well in a networking meeting. So usually by the time somebody had seen my resume, they already knew they wanted to hire me. And this strategy worked really well for me with as, as somebody with an advanced degree. I don't know if it would be as effective for an undergrad, but hey, I mean, you could try it wherever you're at. So that's kind of the power of networking. And I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm an employer and I, I have a job posting up right now. And one of the scariest things for an employer about hiring somebody is you just want to know that it's somebody who's going to work well and who's going to do a good job and who can learn. And I think in a lot of cases, the more you network, you've got all these people out there in the world who know that you have something to offer and are much more likely when somebody at their company or at another company says, we need somebody to do X, they're going to say, oh yeah, I just had coffee with this person a few weeks ago and I think they might be interesting. So that's really why I just say like, just network like crazy and you'll, you'll end up getting jobs coming to you eventually. But yeah, I guess that would be kind of the main strategy or advice I would give. It's not, it's nothing too um, insider secret about it. I know it's pretty common, but I also do know from talking to people that a lot of people know they need to network, but they don't. A lot of people still insist on kind of throwing resumes into a black hole. And I've had people who have approached me and asked how to get a job. And I said to network and they came back later, you know, what one person in particular came back six months later and said, I still don't have a job. And I said, have you networked? And they said, well, no, but I gave out, you know, 350 job applications, <laughs> like stop sending in applications and go talk to people. So this is really the way that the job search, I think, is changing in the 21st century. And even though networking is conventional wisdom, I think it's probably one of the best skills you can have for your career. And not everybody's good at it. So the better you can get at it, and the more you can increase your ability to connect to people, even on a human level, not just on a job level, but just connecting to people on a human level, you'll find that uh, opportunities start to open up. As the saying goes, it's not what you know is who you know, right? So again, networking, building relationships long-term will help make your career more prosperous, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even about your first job if you just graduate. It's about, you know, your networking might be about your fifth job. You really don't know where where these people are going to come into play again in your life. So I think that's why building a network is not just a one-time thing. It's something that's lifelong. Yeah, absolutely. And just to get back to that real estate, I think you would have been good in real estate from a branding perspective. I mean, the, first, <laughs> the first PhD of real estate, you could brand yourself as I'm the doctor of real estate, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a good marketing employee and you, you, you could have got yourself out there. <laughs> that's a great idea. Maybe that'll be my next venture. We'll have to see. <laughs> 
Sounds good. I really appreciate the time, Chris. So how can people find you online and what type of projects are you working on that my audience would be able to check out? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, the, the biggest place is on my website, which is www.roostervane. It's a super weird word, .com, but roostervane is like a rooster, R-O-O-S-T-E-R-V-A-N-E, roostervane. So there's a whole story there we won't talk about right now. But so definitely check out the website. There will be increasingly there's going to be some um, courses and things opening up on the website to uh, help people in their uh, in their career transitions from degrees. But there's a ton of free stuff on the blog, lots of good resources, LinkedIn guides, things like that. You can find me on Twitter, CJ Cornthwaite, C-O-R-N-T-H-W-A-I-T-E. And also on LinkedIn, feel free to connect or whatever. And yeah, that's that's how to find me. Okay, well, really appreciate the time, Chris. I hope my audience found your expertise useful, especially the ones with the quote-unquote useless degrees. Uh, so again, <laughs> thank you for the time and uh, best of luck in your project. Thanks very much, Max. You too. Chris gave a lot of actionable insights to help people maximize any degree they have to build a career that they love. Here are a few key highlights that I wanted to summarize that I thought were the most important in my discussion with Chris. The first is, if there's a certain field that you want to get into, getting some sort of internship experience on your resume to complement your academic experience will work wonders for your job application. And speaking of job applications, the cover letter is a great way to tell your story in terms of how your academic experience translates well into the responsibilities of the role that this company wants to fill. On the online branding side, Chris talks about how you should build a great online professional presence. And there's no better way to do this than to build out your profile on LinkedIn. Whether it's adding a keyword rich headline in regards to the industry that you want to get into, creating a great story on your about page that resonates with your audience, adding portfolio pieces in your LinkedIn profile that recruiters can take a look at, and highlighting key accomplishments and successes across all your work experience. And the most important thing that Chris mentioned in terms of taking control of your career and to get the opportunities you want is to network. You can start with warm connections, people you already know, get comfortable with speaking to them about what you're trying to do in the next chapter of your career. But even for me personally, I highly suggest that you start reaching out to people at companies that you want to work at and just get a feel of what type of company, the culture it is and what type of individuals they're looking for. Do that enough and you'll eventually have an in for your interview to land a job at that company. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Chan with a Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. I post new episodes every Tuesday morning. If you found this episode useful, I would greatly appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family to help grow the show. If you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I post daily content on topics such as job search, career advice, and personal branding. That's it for me, and I'll see you next time.